Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see you, be with you. Um, I hate to stack so many uh, announcements on top of one another, but just a reminder that next week we begin our equipping classes at 9 a.m. We will have three classes. Uh, We've been promoing those for a while, marriage and family. Uh, How to study the Bible class called How I Love Your Law and um, uh, a class called Fundamentals of the Faith, a basics of doctrine class for those new to the faith or grizzled veterans. Uh, It's not too late to sign up. In fact, I I plead with you that that you would. There is plenty of space available. There's there's no shortage of that. So uh, really good opportunities. And and many of what we talk about this morning as far as equipping of the saints will, will be directly connected to these classes. They're not just classes. That's so academic and dry. I can't find another word. When I come up with one, I'll I'll give you a different word for classes, but something that will uh, really communicate what these are designed to accomplish, which are uh, equipping opportunities to help you live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That's a lot, but that's what I mean by equipping classes are those kinds of resources. So that begins uh, next Sunday at 9 a.m., and I really encourage you to be a part of that. I'm really looking forward to that. Also, one more thing. Uh, In November, I will begin preaching through the book of Daniel. Uh, Really excited about that. I've been uh, uh, almost done translating through the book. I've read through the book uh, a bunch of times, and I'm having a really good time in preparation. I cannot wait to get to that and to see God's, uh, the final chapter of God's plan for history. So that will be exciting. Uh, Also, I just, I feel very much in need of the Lord. That's, I always feel that way. Uh, But for whatever reason, I feel like especially I need one more time before the throne of grace, before we launch. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I feel fearful this morning. Fearful and afraid and uh, fearing man. And Lord, my my thoughts of you are so small. I feel divided, I feel distracted. My head feels clouded. And Lord, I am just a man and and weak and I am a spiritual cripple and a beggar of grace. And so I come to you this morning and, and I ask for that grace. And I pray that you would give me and this precious flock, I pray that you would give us a 30,000 foot level of what you're doing in human history. I pray that you would help us to see, O Christ, that you are triumphant, that you are and will build your church. You will bring it to pass. You will bring it to completion. Help us to have that big, long uh, uh, view, that that, uh, long-distance view, that telescopic view of history, Lord, knowing that it's just a matter of time before we are singing, worthy is the Lamb, every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And I pray that that would encourage us and strengthen us this morning. So, Lord, please sustain me, this man who is only dust, and sustain these who are hearing, who also are only dust. And may, Christ, you receive all the glory for what you're going to do in and through your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I know that you thought school was over. Got bad news for you. I've come bringing a quiz this morning. I've got a quiz for every single one of you here. Uh, It's a 
easy quiz. It's a one-question quiz. There's only one question. There's no pens or paper needed, no uh, grades issued, no GPAs recorded here. There's no risk involved, but it's a quiz nevertheless. Here's the quiz. I'm going to give you the names of 10 well-known companies that you've all heard of, and all I want you to do is think about what they all have in common. That's the quiz. Really easy, so 10 well-known companies, and you just need to figure out what it is that they all have in common. You ready? Number one, Kodak cameras. Okay, are you writing this down, Charles? He is, he's writing it down, okay. <laughs> he's diligent. All right, number one, Kodak cameras. Number two, Pan Am Airlines. Number three, Polaroid cameras. Number four, Xerox. <laughs> Number five, Radio Shack. Number six, JCPenney. Number seven, Sears. Uh, Number eight, Toys R Us. Number nine, Blockbuster Video. And last but not least, number 10, my favorite one on the list, Hostess. Makers of the most unhealthy, it'll probably kill you, but who cares, it's so good. Anyway, pastry on the planet, known as the Twinkie. Okay, now think about it, what? There's those 10 companies, what do every single one of those companies have in common? They're no longer in business, that's exactly right. See, it was an easy quiz, no risk involved here. In fact, not only are each one of those corporations failed corporations, but every single one of them have filed for bankruptcy and most of them are not even in existence anymore. Apparently though, there was such a great outrage over the crumbling of the hostess company that people rose up in rebellion and emptied their, their piggy banks in order to, to make sure the hostess didn't disappear. So Twinkies are still available. Good news, I suppose. But, but here's the thing, Kodak failed because they, they couldn't picture that digital cameras would, want, would be something that anyone would actually want to use. See what I did there? Uh, Xerox, they, they crumbled as a corporation because they thought, get this, that copiers and not computers were the wave of the future. How did they miss that? Uh, Radio Shack. Radio Shack literally turned into abandoned shack because they, they refused to, to update their technology to keep up with technological advances. So they, they missed the memo about smartphones, apparently. Blockbuster Video. It was a total bomb. Get this, because the CEO thought that online streaming into people's homes was a ridiculous idea. In fact, the owner of Netflix, when it was just started, came to Blockbuster Video and, and uh, pitched his idea, and it was a short meeting, and he thought it was a ridiculous idea, and they lost everything. You see, these companies, the, the, the point is, the, these companies lost their shirts and they died in obscurity because they failed to innovate. They failed to adapt. They failed to change with the times. They failed to keep up with their customers' ever-changing needs. They didn't stay relevant. They thought that what they had was good enough and that they didn't need to change. What's the point? The point is, in the same way, churches, some churches, loosed their Christ-exalting influence to change the world, not because they didn't innovate, but precisely because they did. 
Some churches lose their hell-defying, mission-advancing punch, not because they didn't adapt to the culture, but precisely because they did. They did change with the times. They did change the mission. They did cave to the pressure of marketing success. They did try to give the customer everything they wanted, and they called them customers. And when they did that, they did not know that what they were doing was, and you'll forgive my language, cutting the throat of the very power they needed to advance the mission of the king. Because that's what happens when churches cave to the cultural pressure to, and depart from, the new, from what the New Testament says you have got to have to be a healthy church. And, and to be sure, w without trying to sound nasty at all, there are so many churches working so hard to be relevant and modern and appealing and cutting edge, but to the degree that they sacrifice the very things that you need to have a lasting impact in the world. Now, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to mishear me. I don't want you to misunderstand. I, churches don't have to be creepy or outdated to be spiritual, okay? Being old-fashioned is not a virtue, okay? I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to, and it shouldn't feel like you're traveling back in time when you're going to church. I mean, just all cards on the table here. My personal preference is when it comes to the non-essentials, hear that, non-essentials, I think we should be as modern and innovative and, and um, cutting edge as possible. But when it comes to the non-negotiable head on the chopping block convictions that the New Testament says you should die for, you hold the line. You hold the line and you do what the Bible says churches are supposed to do, no matter how counter-cultural counter or crazy they make you look. And speaking of counter-cultural convictions that make you crazy, make you look crazy in the eyes of the world, that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. And, and you understand this. I mean, we're at a critical juncture at our, in our church. And by critical, I mean incredible. I mean, we've literally started a new chapter in the life of our church. Last week, we began a three-week series, vision series, called O Church of Christ Invincible. And the name's intentional, not just because I got it from the song, but because where it really comes from is Matthew 16, 18, when Christ declared, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what's so jolting about that statement is that it reminds us is that the church is the only institution that Christ ever promised to build and he won't leave the job unfinished. You see, the church will be built. The darkness will be penetrated. The gospel will be proclaimed. The elect will be reached. Christ will be triumphant. And so our job in a vision series is simply to hitch a ride with what Christ is already doing in human history and follow him into the battle. That is what a vision series is. And last week we began the series. If you were here, you remember that we began the series by revealing the drama of salvation unfolding in human history. In other words, we looked at the plan of redemption that is unfolding in the world and how this church fits into that plan. But not only that, 
we also unveiled our new mission statement as a church, didn't we? In other words, the thing that's going to drive and define everything we do in our new mission statement is this. We exist to prize, to portray, and to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That is now what's going to define and drive everything we do. But of course, that raises the question. Okay, that sounds great, but what does that actually look like in a church practically in real time? How, how are we actually going to fulfill the mission that we see unfolded in the New Testament that churches are to be and do? And that's a fantastic question because what we're going to do is we are going to look at the non-negotiable head on the chopping block priorities that the New Testament says you have got to have to fulfill the mission as the as the church. You see, in these, these commitments, these convictions that we're about to see, these are so significant. These are so weighty. These are so essential that if we don't do them, if we cave to the cultural pressure and we change with the times and we replace these with other things that are, that are more palatable to the 21st century soul, we might grow the size of our church overnight but we will go bankrupt in our ability to make an impact for an eternity. So here's where we're going this morning. And if you've got notes, this is what's in there. This morning, I want you to see seven non-negotiable convictions. Seven non-negotiable convictions of Christ's community required to fulfill our urgent mission as a church. That's where we're going. Seven non-negotiable convictions of Christ's community required to fulfill our mission as a church. And, and as you're about to see, none of these things are very innovative. None of them are creative. None of them are on the list of the uh, uh, church growth experts who say this is what you need to build a church. And these are things that you already want. These are things you already agree with. And yet, nevertheless, we need to get these out on the table too so that we all know what it is we need to fulfill our mission. And so, non-negotiable conviction number one. We commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. To fulfill our mission as a church, we commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. Because if you think about it, expository, verse-by-verse -verse preaching, that hasn't always been popular. In fact, it's never been popular. <laughs> Even in Paul's own day, he was mocked and preaching was mocked and ridiculed as a preposterous and outmoded way to build the church, at least the kind of preaching Paul did. The Athenian philosophers mocked him. The Corinthian educators belittled him. The Jews threatened his life and wanted to kill him for his preaching. And yet Paul remained unmoved because preaching was the thing. And I realize what this sounds like. It sounds a bit self-serving to have the guy who's preaching talk about why preaching is so important to the life of the local church. I mean, of course I would want to justify my existence to you. And yet that's not why I'm preaching about preaching, nor why it's first on the list. Because you remember Paul's words to Timothy, don't you? In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Even when he was on death row for his own preaching. And his chains 
clanked against his wrists as he wrote this letter. He wrote these words to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, before God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and by his kingdom, here it is, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when men shall not endure sound doctrine but rather they shall gather for themselves according to their own lusts, teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. In other words, as God as my witness, Timothy, the central work to which you are to give yourself, whether it's popular or not, whether they want to hear it or not, is the careful, methodical, blood-earnest exposition and proclamation of the Word of God. That is your job, Timothy, not dramas, not skits, not therapeutic pep talks that boost their self-esteem. Rather, the urgent, passionate, glad-hearted proclamation of the truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, why? Why is it that expositional verse by verse preaching is so central to the church? Why is this first on the list? Great question. Three answers. Number one, we preach here because preaching is the means through which Christ exercises his authority and headship over his church. He said, this is not my church. This is not the elders' church. This is Christ's church. This is his church, and, he, and how he leads his church is when he speaks to us in and through his word. What he wants for his church is revealed through his word. Therefore, we preach. Number two, we preach here, and preaching is the center and not something else because preaching is how the church encounters the majesty of Christ that satisfies our souls. What I mean is there is an appetite deep within each one of you that only Christ can satisfy. And so preaching is how we collectively see and savor Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Therefore, we preach which is probably what Calvin meant when he said we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. That's probably what Luther meant when he said if anyone would want to hear God speak, let him read, or in this case, hear Holy Scripture. Number three. Preaching, we preach because preaching is the means through which the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed. You see, the Word of God is the holy chisel the Spirit uses to carve raw sinners into the image of Christ. Preaching is the jugular vein coursing with the Spirit's power to transform our church. Do we or do we not want to be a Spirit-filled church? That's exactly what we want. But a Spirit-filled church is a Word-filled church. Therefore, we preach. Which brings us to non-negotiable conviction number two. 
We commit to cultivating heartfelt treasuring of the triune God. To fulfill our mission, we commit to cultivating heartfelt treasuring of the triune God through his word because because you know that about yourself, don't you? That you were made to be satisfied. That you were made to treasure that you were made to savor, that you were made to enjoy, that you were made to be exhilarated by something, or should I say, by someone. I mean, you literally emerged out of the womb on the prowl for something that will fulfill the deepest longings of the soul. I mean, that's exactly who you are. And I, I don't want you to think that's a bad thing. No, make no mistake, that is how God made you. But God gave you longings for satisfaction that he alone could fulfill. Think about what the Bible says. Psalm 36, 8 and 9. How precious, listen to the language. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the makor chayim, the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Do you hear that? The, The sober intoxication of being satisfied in God. I mean, drink your fill, it says. God is the fountain of life. Put the pieces together. You thirst. And God is the great thirst quencher. Listen to the raw, consuming thirst of the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Are you not the deer in the desert? Do you not have within you the raw, consuming thirst to be as satisfied as you possibly can? If you're honest, you'll admit that you do. And it is God himself who made you that way. And the texts go on. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in Yahweh. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Think about it. Think about it. What he's calling us to do is to indulge in Yahweh. I mean, everything in life can only be enjoyed in moderation or it will kill you. This is the one exception. Indulge yourself in God who is the feast. And the text go on. Psalm 107 verse 9, for he, listen, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Jared, I get it. God satisfies the soul. What is your point? My point is, the Christ-exalting success of a church or the Christ-defaming failure of a church is completely dependent upon the appetite that church has for the living God. So we are going to preach an infinitely big God at Christ Community. We're going to preach joy here We're going to preach satisfaction here. 
We're going we're gonna to preach an infinitely happy God and how we can drink the river of his delights through Jesus Christ. We're going to make it a habit here at this church to climb up the Himalayas of Scripture to see the majesty of God in the pages of Scripture because I am convinced that the more consumed we are with who God is, the more effective we will be for the mission to which he's called us. So my question is, how are you doing with God's word right now? I mean, there's two ways this can go. We can be gluttons or we can be anorexics for God's word. And I mean the language to be strong. And, and I just want you to know, I have no interest in guilting any of you. My job is not to make you feel guilty. My only job is to make you feel hungry. So if you're not very consistent in God's word this morning, I just want to encourage you. I just want to let you know that this book, this is not, I want you to think, to rethink how you think about this book. This book is not only the menu which gets us to the feast, but it itself is the feast. Which brings us to non-negotiable conviction number three. We commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. We, to fulfill our mission of prizing, portraying, and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, we commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible because that's the thing about prayer. It's not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice. Rather, it is the means through which Christ does the absolutely impossible. You see, prayer is the blood and guts act of calling the headquarters of heaven for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances against the darkness. And you see, that's oftentimes why prayer malfunctions in our lives. Our failure in prayer is owing largely to the fact that it, it is not only for our own personal devotional delight, but that it also is a wartime radio with which we call in reinforcements for everything the church needs to advance the Great Commission. That's what prayer is. And you know the texts, don't you? You know all the texts. Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, and knock. Luke 18.1, pray at all times and do not lose heart. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Why? Why is prayer such a big deal? Well, I have five reasons. <laughs> Five reasons why prayer is non-negotiable for us. These are going to go fast. Number one, we pray because all we are on our own by ourselves are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. Therefore, we pray. Number two, we pray because God has called us to labor for that which is his alone to give. Even the most basic goals and tasks of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach. Therefore, we pray. Number three, we pray because life 
is war. And we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. And it is war. Therefore, we pray. Number four, we pray because God is sovereign. And I know that seems that seems contradictory. That, that seems counterintuitive. Why would we pray because God is sovereign? Because the sovereignty of God does not make our prayers meaningless. The sovereignty of God is the guarantee that our prayers for the impossible are not in vain. Therefore, we pray. And then number five, we pray because all we want more than anything else is that the majesty of Christ would be put on display. Right? Right? Is not what we want more than anything else that Christ would work in this church in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural? That's exactly what we want. And prayer is the means that God has given to make that happen. Now, I know what potentially could be happening here. I mean, nothing, nothing agitates the old guilt-o-meter more than when we start talking about prayer, right? Because we all know, we all know that, that none of us pray with the kind of passion or intensity or focus or consistency that we all should, should. And you see, therein lies part of the problem. Namely, that we view prayer as the heavy-handed buzzkill should. Now, don't get me wrong, it is a should. It is a should. It is a glorious should. We should do this. But it's not only a should. It is also a get to. We get to do this. We get to pray. We get to participate through prayer in the most invincible mission in history because, because prayer is how God unfolds the plan unfolding in history. Prayer is not what we do after we've done everything else. Rather, it is the means that Christ has given to unfold his plan. Don't you see, prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer doesn't change what God has ordained. Rather, God accomplishes what he has ordained through the prayers of his people. So Christ Community Church is going to be a praying church. Why? Because we know that if this church is going to make a splash for eternity and be faithful to the mission, we have got to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. As some of you suggested in the recent survey that we add corporate prayer to our Sunday morning services, thank you for that. That's a great idea. We can do that. And we've been praying here at 9.30 a.m. on Sundays for months, pleading with Christ to work in this church, and I invite you to join us if you're able. And uh, worship and prayer nights are coming soon, coming soon to this church where we can pray together as a brigade of souls and, and you can pray individually and as families, you can pray for this church and you do pray and you must pray and you should pray and you get to pray. You get to participate in the most triumphant mission in the universe because prayer is the means through which Christ does the impossible. Non-negotiable commitment number four. 
Number four, we commit to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To fulfill our mission of prizing, portraying, and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, we commit to equip the saints for the work of ministry because the problem with the human race is not that we occasionally wake up on the wrong side of the bed. It's that we are all born waking up on the wrong side of reality. What I mean is, the very interpretive lenses that we use to make sense out of the world, we were born with those warped and mutilated by sin. You have to understand, we are all born pre-brainwashed. We are all, we all emerge onto the planet having been pre-indoctrinated by what the Apostle Paul calls futile speculations. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9.3, he, he said, the heart of the sons of man are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts all of their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Great encouragement, Solomon. Thank you for that. And you see, the point is, the point is, we are all born misconstruing reality. The wiring of our thinking, which always affects our living, is crossed and mixed and tangled and, and frayed. And when we get saved, we bring all of that tangled thinking into the Christian life. Our thoughts and expectations and desires for love and marriage and relationships, and children, and work, and sex, and money, and conflict. All of that is still caught in the tangle of the old life in the old person. Now, I'm not saying that, that uh, you know, I should put it this way, you know, um, it's true that in Christ we are new creatures. Right? We, we are new creatures, and we have the Spirit of God within us, and, and we now have the power to be changed, but not all, of those, uh, not all of those changes happen instantaneously, do they? You see, the gospel is not the magic wand that, that magically transforms everything in our life. You know, we show up to the ball of the Christian life, saved and regenerated to be sure, but with some of those old rags and dirt still badly in need of repair. Here's where I'm going with this. That rewiring and resoldering and reclamping and untangling and deprogramming and reprogramming of our thoughts that always affects our lives is exactly what Paul means when he tells pastors to equip the saints. That's what he means. So if you're still in Ephesians 4, I want you to look down at verse 11. And I want you to remember this text because this text is central to who we are and where we're going as a church. In fact, let me put it this way. This text is the electrician, theological electrician manual for how to have a healthy church that changes the world. In other words, we get this right and we will be and do what churches are called to be and do. This is so fundamental. So let's walk through the text here. Verse 11. You notice that Christ gave leadership to the church. 
That's one of his many gifts to the church. Apostles and prophets aren't around anymore, but evangelists and pastors and teachers are. And so isn't that that interesting? Isn't that even humorous? The elders and I (laughs) are Christ's gift to you. Now, we may not be the gift you asked for, but nevertheless, we are the gift that he gave. So we're, we're, we're stuck with one another. Um, but, but you see here, you see what he calls pastors to do for their people. Verse 12. He calls pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He gave leadership to the church and their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you see here, my job is not to do all the work. My job, my work is to teach and train and equip you to do the work. That's my, that's my job description from the inspired apostle. Now, what the work of ministry is, we're going to see that in conviction number five, but you just need to see that my marching orders from the apostle are to equip the saints. And that word equipping is super interesting. That was the word used in Paul's day to describe the mending and repairing of fishing nets which had been torn. That was the word that doctors used in Paul's day to describe the, the resetting and healing of broken bones. And I think that if Paul were standing here, he could very easily use that word to describe the process of resoldering and rewiring and ripping out the old wires and replacing them with new ones. You see, that is equipping. It's the process, get this now, of repairing wounded sinners with the word of God so that they can live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That is equipping. And that's exactly why we're offering equipping classes. That's why we call them equipping classes because of this text. That's why we do theology seminars. That's why small groups exist. That's where we're going to offer biblical counseling in January. That's why we do books of the month. That's why we preach at this church, not merely to fill your heads with a bunch of information, but to rewire your lives so that the power of God can work course through your veins, transforming your lives. Now, because I have minutes and not hours here, let me, let me give you the effects of equipping because I really believe that this text is just like a circuit board. And, and, the, and, and if, you, if you look at the text, you'll see that Paul shows all sorts of connections that happen when pastors equip their people for the work of ministry. For instance, verse 12, one of the effects, edification. Edification. In other words, you equip the saints, the body will be edified meaning they will be built up and strong, able to resist sin and the pressures of the culture. It strengthens the church. Verse 13, unification, unity. You equip the saints with sound doctrine, they will be unified, which seems counterintuitive. Come on, Jared. Doctrine doesn't produce unity. That brings disunity. Not true. That's not what the Bible says. You see, doctrine is not the liability that brings disunity. It is the foundation that produces true unity. Verse 13, maturation, maturity. 
you equip the saints, they will be mature. Wise, stable, strong lives, not always coming apart at the seams, making profoundly wise decisions that, that change and transform and, and even set the trajectory of their lives so that, so that great, 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 great grandkids are, are walking in the faith. That's what happens when you equip the saints. See, all equipping is, is connecting the battery of truth with the wires of your lives and the light bulb at the end is the glory of Christ which radiates light and heat for the great commission. So if this church is going to be an invincible church, it must and it will equip the saints. Which brings us to conviction number five. We commit to speak the truth to one another in love. If we're going to fulfill our mission to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ, we commit to speak the truth to one another in love. Because in other words, the the, the question that, that would be raised from Ephesians 4 is, well, if pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, what is the work of ministry? Paul tells us exactly what that is. And, and, and you see, everyone in the church loves to talk about love, right? Everybody loves the idea that a church should be loving. Nobody doesn't love love. And everyone knows that a church should be loving and, and loving is right and, and biblical and indispensable for the Great Commission. In fact, if there is no love, there is no mission. Agreed? But I wonder, though, if you force most people to define what love is, how, how concrete could they be? How, how specific could they be? How practical could they be? What does a supernaturally loving church actually look like on a week by week, day by day, conversation by conversation basis? And I suppose that means we gotta go back to square one and we have to even define what love is. And so do you know what it means to love? What does it look like to love one another? And love is this. Listen very carefully. Love means very practically at every event, every situation, every interaction, every conversation, in fact, your job is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. I know that was long and that was a lot. Let me say that again. Love means at every event, every interaction, every situation, every conversation, your job is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. That is love. Love is simply connecting people to Christ and all that he is and all that he accomplished. And if that's true, if that's true that that's what love is, and it is, then that has really powerful ramifications for the life of a church. Because what that means, get this now, is that authentic love is you intentionally investing the word of God into one another's lives. That's what it looks like. 
Intentional, faithful, persistently investing the word of God into one another's lives. In other words, you know that a church really knows how to love one another when they are constantly pointing one another to Christ as the highest treasure in the universe. It starts, it just starts in the pulpit on Sunday morning. It happens as elders shepherd the flock with the scriptures. It happens in the home as mom and dads invest in their kids with the word. It happens, and it happens throughout the week in countless interactions as you and me, we invest, mutually invest in one another's lives with the living and active word of God. I mean, if you want this church, and I know you do, but if you want this church to be everything you imagined it could be, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. It is collective. It is mutual. It is us. It is us entrusting and giving and investing the word of God into one another's lives. And, and this is exactly what Paul said in, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, Christ gave leadership to the church. What, is, what do leaders do? They equip the saints for the work of ministry. But again, what is the work of ministry? Because we tend to think of church in terms of programs run by a few, right? Children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, singles, seniors, and, and those are fantastic. And if, and if you do those right, they are incredible. And I want all those things too. But what the church really is, is intentional, faithful, word-centered ministry to one another. Look at Ephesians 4. Verse 15, he says, basically, instead of getting swept away by all sorts of ridiculous, false teachings, instead of that, we are to be speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in him in all things, who is the head, namely Christ. And there it is. That, I believe, is the primary work of ministry that Paul has in mind. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Not necessarily programmed. Not necessarily scheduled. Not official ministry titles. No, this is the ministry that all of us inherit. Speaking the truth in love. And what's really interesting, that word speaking the truth in love, in the Greek, it's one word word. One word in the Greek, and it's plural, and it's present tense. Everybody all the time speaking the truth to one another in love. And, and the one word in Greek, if you literally woodenly translated it, it would be this. Truthing in love. Truthing in love. That's what he's saying. All of us, all the time, truthing in love is how we grow up in Christ in all things. I mean, this is so exciting to me. I mean, don't, don't you see? This is the key. This is the secret to a healthy church. Truthing, truthing, truthing one another in love. And I don't mean in some sort of weird, bizarre, pharisaical, kind of legalistic way. I don't mean that. I mean us just imparting one another truth. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, you don't have to turn there. But, but the congregation was in agony. They were, they were terrified. They were fearful. And so what does Paul do? He talks about eschatology. Eschatology. 
And, and he says, therefore, comfort one another with these things. That's what we're after. That's what we're after. Faithful, intentional investment of the word of God into one another's lives. And so here's the question for you this morning. Who are you truthing in your life even at this moment? Who are you truthing? Husbands and wives, are you truthing one another? Parents, grandparents, are you truthing your children and your grandchildren? Seniors, you have a profound ministry at this church, and it's not just to truth one another, but to truth the younger families in this church. Singles, you have an incredible ministry opportunity in this church, and it's not just truthing one another, but it's truthing anyone and everyone because Colossians 3.16 puts it like this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Why? For what purpose? To what end? that you may teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is the work of ministry. That's where we're going as a church. So did you know that? Did you know? Get this now. This is so important for the life of a church. Did you know that your personal, individual pursuit of holiness is a community service project? Did you know that, that ministry in the local church means that my holiness is your business and your holiness is my business? It is. That's how a body functions. And again, I, I know I don't have to qualify this. I don't mean in some creepy, bizarre, invasive way. I mean humble and heartfelt and real and genuine and authentic where we confess sins to one another and, 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 we, and we grant one another forgiveness in Christ and we are just, we are just constantly uh, responding to one another with truth, seeking to encourage and help and strengthen and sustain and satisfy and give hope to one another with the unchanging truth of God's word. That is where we're going. And we're almost done. Number six, we commit to love one another with radical affection. We commit to love one another. I mean, if we're going to fulfill our mission as a church to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ, we must commit to love one another with radical affection. And again, and again, it's so, so interesting to me. Isn't it interesting to you how central love is to the entire operation? I mean, it's interesting that, that we have to love one another first or we will never be and do what churches are called to be and do. I mean, so much is riding on this. And, and what our church is called to be and do? Well, if you really had to boil it, distill it down, churches are called to be mirrors that reflect and portray who Christ is for everyone to see. The question is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to be mirrors that reflect and portray and exhibit and display Christ for the treasure that he is? How, how are we going to show the world that he means more to us than anything and that he is worth giving everything up for? How is this going to happen? And the answer comes in a well-known text, John 13, 34, and 35. I believe it's in your notes. But listen to what Christ says. 
and you know it well, but pretend like you don't know the punchline. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples. Stop there. How, Jesus? How will they know? How will they know that our allegiance to you is real? How will they, they know that you are worth giving everything up for? The answer, well known, no less profound by this. They shall know, all shall know that you are my disciples if, if, if you have love for one another. I mean, that's, that's profound, isn't it? And weighty and glorious. The world will know that our allegiance to Jesus Christ is real. They'll be forced to admit that our allegiance to Christ is real, not when we have emotionally ecstatic experiences, not when we have unexplainable supernatural occurrences, not when we have professionally run services and programs, not when we have culturally relevant and engaging methods, but when we have love. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, I just want you to know, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love them. He didn't say that. The world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is profound. And what does that look like? Not only speaking the truth in love, but you also know that this comes in many, many forms, such as encourage one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, teach one another, instruct one another, rebuke, even rebuke one another, love one another, serve one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another, be devoted to one another, be patient to, with one another, bear one another's burdens, and literally 45 other one another's in the New Testament. That is ministry. That is church. That is love. Unbelievable. We need to pray every single day that God would unleash his power in this church to do the one another's. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying let's pray for that. And that's why we're doing ministry teams. Again, more details to come on what ministry teams are and even what they are, among them being media team and hospitality team and mercy team and events team and prayer team and, and whatever particular gifts you have, there will probably be a team for it. And the goal is not merely to make you busy, but a practical opportunity to do the one another's, to make us a healthy church that changes the world. Finally, number seven, almost done. We commit to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. I mean, if we're going to fulfill our mission of prizing and portraying and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, we commit to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. And I put this last, not because it's least, but because it is the inevitable chain reaction of the other six. You see, if we preach the word, 
If we treasure God, if we pray for the impossible, if we equip the saints, if we speak the truth, if we love one another, the inescapable overflow of all those things is the proclamation of the gospel, both locally and abroad. And those two words, local and abroad, are really important to me because both of those realities are what the Bible says the church's mission is. You see, we will not be a church that pits local evangelism against global missions as if they are missions, uh, missions that, are, that are antagonistic to one another. They are not. It's not either or. It is both and local and global, Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. And I'm persuaded, I am persuaded on biblical grounds that the healthier this church becomes, I mean, the deeper our vision of who God is, the further out to the nations we will go. The more passionate we become about the glory of Christ, the more passionate we will be about proclaiming him and the greater sacrifices we will make to do so. You you have to understand, the invincible purpose of God is that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed and it be spread to all the peoples of the world and take root in God-centered, Christ-exalting churches. That's what the elders want for this church. That's what you want for this church. And so I want this church to be a launch site for global ministry. I want Christ's community to be a haven, a haven preparing vessels, not for the cushy yacht life of American luxury, but preparing battleships armed with the gospel who venture into the storm-tossed, shark-infested ocean of humanity. I want us to be a launch site for global ministry. And I believe with all my heart that if we put all the eggs of our hope into the basket of the power of God's word, that's exactly what we're going to be. Now, what that looks like for you and this church practically Again, holding the cards close here, that remains classified until next week, where we're gonna unfold a 20-year plan, a 20-year plan for this church to change the world and make this church a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we cast ourselves upon you. We despair in our worthless resources to live the Christian life. And we cast ourselves upon you for your endless ones, Christ. This is your church and you're going to have to build it. And and Lord, in your design, in your sovereign design, that will go as fast or as slow as you want it. And I just ask, oh Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would not feel the pressure to be flashy, that, that you would help us to, be, to, to know when we should move faster or go slower or, and, and, and put the kinds of practical things in place. Lord, what I'm saying is I'm just crying out to you because church is hard. Ministry is, is, is tangly sometimes. And, 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 and the elders and I, we don't always know what to do. And, and I know the congregation feels the same. So I pray that you would help us just to have this profound spirit of unification from your word and that we would be riveted on what your mission is, which is to prize and portray 
and proclaim your supremacy, O Christ, in all things for the joy of all peoples. So we look forward to how you will use this church always and only for your own glory. In your matchless name we pray. Amen.